Hello again. Welcome to the CCW Safe broadcast. Um, I am Rob High, and joined today by our very special guest. You guys all know him, Andrew Branca from the Law of Self Defense. How are you doing today, Andrew? I am doing awesome, and thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, uh, had had the honor to spend a little time with Andrew this weekend at the Guardian Nation. Uh, training conference in Oklahoma City at the Oklahoma City Gun Club. Um, we were full up with really high-end instruction from uh, shooting to less lethal munitions to uh, legal up, legal things from, from Andrew and, and part of his five elements of a self-defense case. Um, great, great training with uh, people from all over the country. So. Uh, it was it was an honor to be a part of that again. Um, today we want to address something that is um, one of the things that comes around to us as frequently as anything else, and having the knowledge to mentally prepare yourself for this prior to being involved, and you've probably already been involved to some degree, probably as the victim of it. Um, but it is road rage. Um, it's just one of those things that that seems to become more and more frequent, and they're really becoming significantly serious encounters. And part of my thing, I've mentioned this before, is I'm in a vehicle that is mobile, and if I can avoid this thing and take the next exit or the next turn or whatever, and avoidance is still the very most important part of this whole thing. You can't get emotions involved when guns are involved. And if you're carrying a gun, it doesn't matter. Every confrontation you're going to be involved in is an armed confrontation. Um, what are your thoughts there, Andrew? Well, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. It's the, the difficulty, first of all, Avoiding the fight is winning the fight for normal law-abiding people like us. The fights we don't have to fight are fights we've already won. It doesn't get any better than that. One without cost, without violence, without injury, without legal repercussions, criminal liability, the risk. People have to remember, the moment you get engaged in that hands-on confrontation or guns-on or whatever we're talking about, um, you've incurred two risks you weren't incurring a moment before. One is that you could die in that fight. We practice with guns, we take BJJ, we do all this stuff to reduce the risk of losing the physical fight to as close to zero as possible. But it's never zero, folks. It could just not be your day. I don't care how good you are at fighting, it could not be your day. Mike Tyson lost fights too. So you've just incurred a greater than zero risk of dying in the fight. Well, that's not great. And you've just incurred a greater than zero risk of spending the rest of your life in a cage. Because if you end up having to go to your gun, it could be as innocent and lawful a shooting as I've ever seen in my entire life. But I tell every client, if I have to put you in front of a jury, there's a 10% chance you get convicted, no matter how innocent you are. That's the noise in the system. That's the risk of going to a trial. And you don't have much control over whether or not you go to trial once you're in the fight. That's not your decision anymore. It's other people's decision. They drag you into that trial. You could be 100% innocent. It doesn't matter. You run that risk of getting convicted. And if you get convicted, the system treats you no different than it treats any other convicted killer. Yeah. And you're likely to spend the rest of your life in a cage without possibility of early release. Those are the risks. 
uh, when you go to the gun, when you get in that fight, any kind of fight. Now, there are situations that are worth those risks, right? Dying, I'd rather be alive in prison than dead outside of prison or having that happen to your wife or your kids. But it's a pretty short list of things that are worth that risk. Uh, getting upset about somebody cutting you off in traffic or taking the parking space you were waiting for or any of these common scenarios involving motor vehicles that, listen, they're not pleasant. Nobody likes these things. Nobody likes to be disrespected. But you need to be the adult in the room and make informed decisions and understand the risks that you're incurring. I don't know if you saw it, Rob, but I just saw a video that was released recently. I think I saw it on Twitter or something, but it was uh, an intersection in Oakland, California, where someone's driving down the road. He's got the green light and he's just about to enter the intersection and a big white pickup truck blows the red light and comes right in front of him in the intersection. And the person whose dash cam is filming leans on his horn, which is not an unreasonable thing to do, except the response from the man in the pickup is to come out of the pickup with a gun in his hand and start shooting at the filmer. The filmer didn't do anything to deserve to be shot at, but it happened anyway. Uh, and he could well have found himself in a gunfight just because he leaned on his horn. Now, he wasn't a bad actor. He didn't do anything inherently wrong. But anytime you're engaging in an angry way with people in vehicular situations, you don't know who that other person is. You don't know what kind of day they're having or how they'll respond or if they're a psychopathic killer. And because you don't know, especially if you're carrying a gun on your person, you should be doing everything possible to, if anything, de-escalate, but certainly not escalate the situation. The only reason to lean on the horn in that scenario I just described was because the driver was angry that he was cut off the intersection. It didn't make him safer. It didn't prevent anything bad from happening. It was an expression of his reasonable frustration and anger at being cut off in the intersection like that. And the consequence could have been he caught one of those rounds and died as a result. He got lucky, only his car got shot, he didn't get shot. But again, that was not within his control where those bullets were going to end up. Um, and I always caution people, you know, I know what it's like, you get your concealed carry gun. I remember the first time I got mine, I was, I don't know, 22 maybe, uh, living in Massachusetts, believe it or not, had a concealed carry permit. Uh, I grew up in New York in a place in New York State where you could not have a concealed carry permit, it was impossible. And I was shocked when I became an adult and realized, oh, my God, I, I can get a permit and carry a gun on my person just like a police officer. That's amazing. And the first time you do it, it feels super empowering. It's like, oh, my God, I have a gun. That's about the most powerful thing I can be carrying around. I don't have to take nonsense from anybody now. And the truth could not be the more opposite. You're carrying a gun on your person. You basically have to take nonsense from everybody except the person trying to kill you that's the or rape you or kidnap you that's who the gun is for but for everyone else you cannot afford to allow yourself to get engaged in confrontations that are otherwise avoidable don't be getting into fights you don't need to be getting into because of those catastrophic consequences that that's that's so perfect um you know i i go over almost weekly talking about you know, I'm, I'm going to be an armed citizen. I'm going to, to exercise that right. When I, it's almost like when I put my gun on, I have to take my ego off. Yep. As soon as, as, soon as I'm doing that, I need to realize that I, I can't react on emotions anymore because emotions is what starts these things. It's that, you know, the guy goes through the intersection. Oh my gosh. 
he almost hit me. My heart's racing, you know, you idiot. And I'm, and I lay on the horn. Um, you know, you're talking about the percentages of fights that we win and, and can, you know, yes, Mike Tyson's been knocked out. We've, we've seen everybody has an easy button. Um, I've trained combat sport combatants for decades. I've, I've trained and participated and been involved in every aspect from being an athlete, being an official, being a coach. Um, it, it's a game though. Those are, those are within constructed rules in an arena specifically designed for that thing. There are no rules in a street fight. Uh, referee. <laughs> no referee. No, nobody to step in and break you or stop it or anything else. I can't count on anybody else. What I can count on is somebody picking up a, a camera or a phone and, and filming the thing and dependent on when they become involved in that incident, it may appear as though you're the aggressor. That's not a risk I'm willing to take. I can tell something you else you don't control, right? That video footage. If you could get the entirety of the video footage, it'll probably be good for your justification of use of force. If you did things the right way, if you knew what you were doing, you followed the rules, you actually, I mean, in my experience, good guy cases of self-defense, which are very rare, by the way, uh, for within the criminal justice system, 99% of claims of self-defense are garbage. They're just bad actors whose lawyers are raising the legal defense of self-defense because that's what you do as a defense attorney. But if you're a traditional criminal defense attorney, his clients are criminals. I mean, that's just the nature of the job. Um, and everybody knows it wasn't a legitimate claim of self-defense and it tends to get blown up early in trials. So criminal defense attorneys may have a lot of experience arguing self-defense cases, but they tend to be bad guy cases of self-defense. Uh, most criminal defense attorneys, I know you talk to Don West, for example, your national trial counsel at CCW Safe, or any other really experienced criminal defense attorney, 30-year career, 40-year career, you ask them how many good guy claims of self-defense they've ever had to defend, it's a handful, three, yes. four, five, six, over 30 or 40 years. I mean, it, it's just, it's very, very uncommon. So the system is completely used to seeing bad guy cases of self-defense. So when you are fed into the system, guess what you look like to everybody, to all the professionals in the system. I mean, the cops, the prosecution, the judge, they see nothing but bad guy cases of self-defense. Um, I had a point I was circling back to and now I dropped it. I dropped it from my head. Um, can you refresh my recollection where we were, Rob? Oh, the video, the video, right. So uh, one thing that distinguishes good guy cases of self-defense from bad guy cases of self-defense is normally in the rare good guy cases of self-defense, they tend to get into trouble not because there's too much evidence in the case. They tend to get into trouble when there's too little evidence in the case. And so the claim of self-defense begins to look speculative or fabricated. And when someone's recording you on their, their phone for World Star publication later on, you don't control what portion of that video gets released. They control that. And if there's a portion that's favorable to you, I would not count on that being released. Uh, that won't exist. The only thing that will exist is the bad portion, the portion that makes you look like the bad actor. And that's the evidence you're stuck with there. Well, and it's not just that. I mean, I could be 100% honest as a witness, as an eyewitness. So I'm driving along down the interstate and all of a sudden two cars come zooming past me and you can tell that they are 
engaged. They are fully involved somehow, and you don't know what happened. And then I see car B do something, and all of a sudden the thing escalates and things go really south. What I see, what I witness, what I tell the officer when he asks me is the guy driving car B did this. This happened to car A, and this is how the whole thing got got to where it is right now. I don't know what car A did three miles back. I only know the little bit that I've been exposed to. It's not worth that gamble. And unless we're out in the middle of, of the country, you know, on open interstate, I rarely go three miles without having an opportunity to get off. And, and I will absolutely exit. I'll flip a U-turn. I'll do something to get away from that. It's just not worth that, that effort. Um, you know, you mentioned you never know who that person in that car is. I don't know anything about him. I don't know. I don't know if he's fleeing an armed robbery. I have no clue what's going on. This guy may be ready to just snap and pull the trigger on the first person that gets in his way. Um, I had a, an incident like that as I was going to work as a young patrol officer. Um, I'm in my personal vehicle. I'm driving to the station. As a young guy, I wasn't smart enough to go in plain clothes. I'm already dressed. I've got, got my full uniform on. But it's, it's dark enough um, that the other driver has no earthly idea that I'm a cop. And he just goes crazy. And I try to slow down and let him pass. And it's not, it's not happening. Um, so I finally just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pull over to the shoulder of the interstate here. I'm just going to stop. And he stops too. And he gets out of the car and I can see both hands are, are empty at the time. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have a weapon, but at that time I can tell that he's not armed. And I step out of the car and I said, well, you wanted my attention. Obviously now you have it. Well, what are you going to do when it's a cop that, that you're doing that to? Um, and I called for an on-duty unit and, and wrote the guy tickets. Um, that's a safe conclusion. You don't know that I'm not that guy that's having that really bad day and I'm just done. Yeah, I don't care who steps in my way next. I'm, I'm going to handle it. Yeah, that's just going through a bad divorce or a yes. business is collapsing or he's just, you know, just had a damn bad day and someone's going to pay for it. Um, and I mean, I've worked, I've worked cases where we had clients road rage accidents and they're suddenly they're on the shoulder of the road because they got cut off. The other guy gets out with a tire iron and starts beating the crap out of their car. Yeah. Well, nobody likes that. Um, fortunately, my client, I mean, he was armed. He was a weirdo. So he was armed with a revolver, but he was armed. And, uh, the other guy starts chasing him around the car with the tire iron. And fortunately, my client just kept the car between him and the other fellow until the other fellow got tired and got back in his own vehicle and rode away. To me, that's a huge win. Uh, yeah. Could my client have shot him? Almost certainly. And have that been a lawful shoot? But he didn't have to. He was able to keep the car as a barrier. The other guy only had an impact weapon. Um, if my client had slipped and fallen and the other guy had gotten on the same side of the car as him, that guy with the tire end would have been shot and killed, no question about it. My client knew how to run that gun. Fortunately, that didn't have to happen. Even better is if you're never in the encounter in the first place. And, and we don't have control over other people. 
Um, we, you know, we don't know how they're going to respond. We have no influence over that, but we have control over ourselves. Or we ought to have emotional control over ourselves. If, if we're going to carry guns, especially, we need to carry them like professionals, our own sense of being a professional, meaning cool, calm, collected, not driven by emotion, not driven by anger. We can't afford to allow ourselves to get in situations where emotions are being spun up, either the other person's emotions or our own emotions. And frankly, people should condition themselves to that state. I mean, they should think to themselves, you know, what if there's an event like this and the guy starts saying horrible things to my wife or horrible things to my kids, the kind of things that would normally spin up any red-blooded American male. You just can't allow yourself to be manipulated or driven by that because, you know, we might like to think we live in a world where that kind of offensive conduct would justify your use of force against someone. I know a lot of people do feel that way on an emotional level, but I can assure you on a legal level, it does not work. That's not a justification for use of defensive force. And you could well find yourself in a position where you end up actually being the unlawful aggressor in a confrontation. And then you don't actually have a self-defense justification, folks. You don't have a legal defense. Whatever use of force you engaged in, it's just a crime. And again, the, the criminal justice system doesn't, once you get convicted, you're found guilty or you take a plea, which is the same as being found guilty, just to a lesser offense, you're being found guilty voluntarily. Um, the system just treats you just like everyone else convicted of those crimes. They don't say, hey, it's Andrew Branca. He's normally a nice guy, just had a bad day. No, you're getting the same sentence. Uh, because especially in these politically charged times, the judge doesn't want there to be a perception that he's treating some people better than other people because of their background or the race or whatever the case might be. Uh, so you should expect to receive the full weight of the sentencing rules applied against you. Over what? Over what? Again, there are things that are worth those risks. There are things that are worth going to prison for, but it's a very damn short list. Someone's actively trying to kill you or maim you or rape you or kidnap you or do any of those things to someone you have a duty to protect. Awesome. That's worth taking the risk. After that, I run out of things I'm willing to spend the rest of my life in jail for or die over. Well, and the other thing, I mean, I've had instances just completely innocent that I'm going and I think, you know what, I'm going to change lanes and I don't do a good job clearing uh, my blind spot and I, and I begin to, to slide over and all of a sudden you get somebody that's laying on the horn like, you idiot, I'm, I'm right here. Yes, I was an idiot. I didn't see it. I'm guilty. And I will be the first one to just go, oh my gosh, I am, I'm so sorry. Um, but the fact that I'm, I'm sorry and apologetic about what happened may not be enough for the emotional wreck beside me in that car and we may now have an incident. Um, that is the time for me to get off the freaking road, get away from this guy. Um, we had we had a case that that we were involved with where same thing. Um, it's kind of a benign act, but somebody took great offense to it. All of a sudden it's cat and mouse at high speeds. And finally, uh, and that's a couple and they went, you know what? We're out of this call 911. They're doing all the right things and they pull over, but the other party pulls in behind them. Okay, still okay. I'm not comfortable with this guy who is spun up behind me, but I'm still okay. Um, and then one of the involves that 
is in the lead car, decides that's it. I'm confronting this idiot. And he goes back and he shows him his, his firearm. Yeah, yeah. We just became the aggressor. It doesn't matter how it started, but it had stopped for a time and you re-engaged, you approached, you were, you were now the aggressor. And I can't make that okay. I can't make that go away for you. You have to understand those things. <clears throat> and for folks who don't know, the moment you make someone else aware that you have a gun for the purpose of changing their behavior, you've arguably just committed aggravated assault with a deadly weapon to wit a firearm. And that's good for 10 to 20 years in most states. Most of the cases I work on are exactly that. Normal law-abiding people with a concealed carry permit got scared, got angry, showed someone their gun. Sometimes they drew the pistol. Sometimes they just opened up their jacket. Normally, they, they didn't fire a shot, didn't actually hurt anybody. But you don't have to hurt anybody to be charged with aggravated assault. Aggravated assault is simply putting another person in imminent fear of deadly force harm. That's what you're doing when you threaten someone with the gun, make them aware you have a gun for the purpose of changing their behavior. Now, you can justify that as self-defense if you meet the conditions for self-defense, but if you don't meet the conditions for self-defense, all you have is the crime. And, and people need to understand that when we're talking about self-defense, not as a physical act, but a legal defense that's being raised by your uh, attorney, he's raising that legal defense against a criminal charge. And self-defense is a it's a legal defense that's of the nature of confession and avoidance, meaning you're not saying it wasn't you. You didn't do it. You were someplace else. You were at your mama's house having dinner. You have an alibi. That's, that's not what you're saying. You're saying if you're claiming self-defense, you're saying it was me. I did it. I pointed my gun or I shot that guy or whatever the underlying conduct is, but I did it with the legal justification of self-defense. Well, if your legal justification of self-defense is defective or defeated, all that's left of confession and avoidance is confession. You've conceded to the underlying conduct. And then you're simply, that's a walk away conviction for a prosecutor. Um, and it's very, very common. People don't know. They think, I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. Unless I've shot the person, I'm not facing legal jeopardy. You're facing a lot of legal jeopardy the moment they know uh, that you have a gun and you're making them aware. By the way, you don't even need to have actually a gun. If you're pretending that you have a gun, and putting them in reasonable fear of imminent deadly force harm, it's still an aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Well, you know, I, my last assignment in law enforcement, I, I was an investigator. My last assignment, I worked a few years as a robbery detective. Um, there's a difference between robbery and armed robbery. And they don't have to know for a fact that you got a gun. Right. I, it's just like you're talking about there. I come in and I, and I make the threat of, and if I'm the teller at a bank or whatever the case may be, and all of a sudden I go, oh my God, this guy, he's going to kill me if I don't comply. Yeah, he's um, got his hand in his hoodie and he's pointing his finger like there's a gun in there. He doesn't need yes. to have a gun to be committing armed robbery. Correct. Because my belief was he's armed and, and there we go. On, an, on another end of that, um, you know, I'm talking about the other incident that's a real live incident. You know, couple pulls over, the guy pulls in behind him. The guy gets nervous, comes back, um, displays this firearm. Um, let, let's say I'm the guy that gets frustrated and goes back to approach. And I display my firearm. And unbeknownst to me, the guy behind me is way better at running a gun than I am. And he now has that fear of 
of imminent danger. I just showed him I got my gun and he pulls and he shoots me. Guys, he's he's got a great chance of walking away from this thing. And you started it because you brought the gun into play initially. Yeah. So when you display that gun, you walk back, open up your jacket, show him the gun. You better have been facing a imminent deadly force threat. That's what needs to have been occurring for you to be justified in displaying your gun at that person. And if that's not the case, your, your threat of force is unlawful. No different than if someone walked up to you and threatened you with the gun. Well, if your threat of force is unlawful, you're the initial deadly force aggressor in that confrontation, in that moment, regardless of what happened earlier. And that person can well be privileged to use deadly force against you and justify his use of force as self-defense. So you've given him a free ticket to shoot you dead lawfully. That's not a good plan, folks. Yeah, and, and that's, again, it's why we just beat it like a dead horse. We, we go over and over again. You've got to check your emotions. You, you, know, you put your, your firearm on, you take your ego off. Um, it's just that critical. That's the only way that I, that I walk away from that every single time unscathed. Um, it, it's just one of those that I understand the, the macho part of it or the ego part of it. Um, but I've also seen lots of guys get, get shot over things like that. You know, I've, I've investigated hundreds of, of aggravated assaults and shootings. Um, there's nothing cool about getting shot. There's nothing cool about getting shot at. I can assure you there, it, it changes your perspective on everything in life. Um, you know, you, you'd mentioned, you know, how we can control our, our wins and losses. Um, I've trained guys that were world-class athletes. I've trained with guys that were Olympians. I have, I've been blessed over my lifetime to be in an area that, that I've had those kind of associations, but every single one of those guys has suffered defeat. Every single one, not a one of them has, has won everything. Everybody has an easy button. Everybody. Um, the one thing I can tell you absolute that I am 100% on absolutely undefeated forever is everything that I've avoided. If I've avoided a fight, that's a fight I, I cannot lose. It, it's just that simple. <clears throat> and of course, there are circumstances in which the fight just comes to you and there's really nothing you can do except deal with that confrontation. Um, we're not really talking about those. We're talking about the ones where you can influence how things are developing, right? That's something that, that you have some control over. And to have a good outcome there, frankly, requires competency. And everything to do, do well at anything requires competency and you develop competency, right? The first time we ever pick up a handgun, we don't shoot it very well. But if you practice, you get training, you dry fire, you're disciplined, you maintain your proficiency, you develop competence. And when you're competent with a handgun, it's a very different experience than the first time you pick it up. Say you're shooting competitively. It, the whole experience is overwhelming the first time you do it. But competitive shooters often say after they've had a few years experience that they, they can just see more. They see more of what's going on. They see more of the sights. They see more of the targets. And what that really means is, is they've made more of their reactions and their actions. 
subconsciously competent. Those things are happening automatically in the background, so they have more bandwidth to see more. And it's the same BJJ. I know you're a BJJ practitioner. Um, you, you see the higher belts in BJJ training with a lower belt, and the lower belt often looks kind of frantic. Uh, and, and the higher belt is almost looks like they're moving in slow motion, but they're completely dominating the situation because they're seeing more. They have a higher degree of competence. The reactions are more automatic. Are they subconsciously competent? They don't have to think about it. And I think the same is true on how we react emotionally to these types of confrontations. We need to develop a level of competence. And, and you do that it, with shooting, it's dry firing. With BJJ, it would be rolling on a mat and training. With, with dealing emotionally with confrontations, it's thinking through those scenarios ahead of time. And I always urge people, when you hear about road rage incidents, especially these days when everything's caught on video, so you can actually visualize something, think to yourself, what would I do in that circumstance? What did this person do right or wrong? What led to a good outcome or a bad outcome? How would I react myself? It's the kind of mental dry firing or mental rolling so you condition your brain. So if you're ever in one of these situations, it's not actually the first time you're there. Mentally, as far as your brain is concerned, you've been in that situation many, many times before. And your default reactions tend to be competent and emotionally controlled as opposed to emotionally reckless. Otherwise, you resort to the animal part of your brain and you lean on the horn and you get that situation we talked about in Oakland. Uh, where, where emotions, not just your emotions, but the other side's emotions begin to get spun up as well. That's not where you want to be, folks. But but really, the only way to develop confidence is through training, is through, and in this context, it's purely mental training, but you need to do it on a fairly regular basis if you're not going to default to that animal part of the brain. There, There's a couple of words that we're playing with here, um, and both of them are completely necessary to become a really good concealed carrier, um, a citizen defender. Um, and we talk on proficiency, but I can develop a measure of proficiency and not have the mental competency to pair with that. Um, it, it's why in a lot of martial arts, if you got if you got a child taking part in something and all of a sudden at eight years old or nine years old, they're they're testing this kid and now he's a black belt. Um, you, you've been snowed so badly. I mean, there's no such thing as a child who is a black belt, like not like that, because they may have the technical aspects of things, but they do not have the mental. Um, it's. It's one of the things that, that we talk about with, uh, you know, I've, I've touched on it in, in other aspects, but once you get to a certain level in a combat sport, my body won't hold up as I age and mature the same way that it would when I was 16, 18, 24 years old. Um, you know, I, I go flying into decade number seven and if I get rolled up really hard, even if I win a competition, yeah, I still hurt. Um, you just you just have to factor all of those things in. So instead of getting the physical repetitions, there's nothing wrong with me 
kicking back in my chair, knocking the lights down and doing mental repetitions. And like Andrew's talking about, these are the mental things that you're doing here are so incredibly important. Um, All your great operators, um, your special forces group guys, if you don't think these guys don't do mental reps, you're you're absolutely missing the mark. If you don't think really high-speed cops aren't doing mental reps, um, it can be a situation that they have never been in before, but they can take all of their other experiences all of the other trainings, all the things they've done, and they can they can mentally work their way through a problem before they're ever personally encountered with that problem. Um, and the ability to slow things down, and it's like Andrew was talking with the uh, with the uh, competitive shooters. You know, all of a sudden their world slows down. They see things better. They they move more efficiently, or you know the 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 white belt or, or the the junior competitor rolling with the black belt and you see the black belt and he's just he looks like he's in slow motion and the other guy, better decisions it's almost like his brain got 10 times bigger he's just making better decisions that's what confidence does for you now what's really happening of course is the it's not that your brain got bigger your brain's 100 percent whatever it is but without competency under stress the, the stress itself consumes such an enormous percentage of that brain capacity that there's very little left for rational, effective, competent decision-making. The more competent you become, the less effect that stress has, the less of your mental bandwidth it consumes. So where if, if you're a novice or untrained or uncompetent or you haven't thought through these road rage incidents before, in the panic of the moment, that stress might take 90% of your bandwidth. You have 10% of your brain left to make decisions. And part of those decisions are things like how to run the gun. So there's almost nothing left for actually making decisions. But if you thought these things through, you have maybe stress is taking up 10% of your brain. You got 90% left. That's 10 times as much as you had before. Not because anything external has changed, but because your brain is more proficient and competent at handling the situation because you've prepared for it. It's much like pilots and any of the audience who are pilots, they know. They, they study other pilots' crashes, <laughs> not so they can crash, but so they can learn vicariously through those experiences. Yes. Um, and we can do the same thing with these road rage incidents that we hear about in the news. We're, we're, we have the benefit of learning from other people's experiences, developing our competence without having to get into a series of gunfights. Absolutely. I mean, it's, if, I don't, if I don't have the competency to respond and I'm responding out of emotion. Um, I, I love to point things out in the gym or in the dojo or, or on the firing line. Um, you know, the first time you go through a class and somebody's telling you, okay, this next course of fire, we're going to be at the seven yard line. We're going to load our magazines, uh, three magazines with four rounds each, four plus four plus four. Um, you've got X number of seconds to, to draw, engage, and fire this many rounds. And all of a sudden, man, your heart rate goes up, your respirations change, you know, and we, you know, breath control is, is one of the basic fundamentals of shooting. Um, do you think about your breath when you're on the firing line anymore? Is that anything that, I know how to no, breathe. No. I've been doing it from the day that I that I entered this earth. Um, 
It's funny. There's a lot of things you focus on as a as a novice. That, yes. And and I'm I mean I'm an NRA instructor myself, and I teach these things to novice students. Things like breath control and stance and. But once you develop a certain degree of competence, you just stop thinking about those things. They become less important because you can you can focus on the things that really are important, like you know getting a, the sight picture you need to see for that particular shot. You know what that looks like. That's when you can break the shot. It hardly matters where your feet are or what your breathing is because those are not the critical conditions. Those things are things that a, a novice can manage to help facilitate their ability to get to the necessary sight picture. Once you have a high level of competence, you just know what the necessary sight picture looks like. And if you see that, whatever the other conditions, that's the time to break the shot. Uh, but you can, you only have that luxury once you've made the effort, you've made the investment to develop that degree of competence. If a novice tries to do that, they'll just send a bunch of rounds into the berm and not not hit much of anything besides dirt. <laughs> Been there and done that. <laughs> um you know, the same thing. You're, you're talking about a combativist kind of thing. Um, and I think all of these things are, are very necessary to be a fully functional, well-rounded concealed carrier. You know, I, I need to understand uh, spatial awareness and, and how to retain my gun and, and how to not present it in a manner that I, that I actually present it to my assailant. Um, but if you watch these guys in in combatives that have never been apart before, um, you'll see guys with experience that are that are flowing and moving and and they're very gentle and graceful with a lot of the things. Their breath is controlled because it's not all a physical exertion, muscular thing. And brand new people because they have nothing else at their disposal. Um, run out of air in about 45 seconds because they, they squeeze and they grip and they, huh, huh, you know, they're just giving everything they have and they're contracting everything in their body to try to control something. Um, and those very same things come into play in a shooting. Those things happen. Um, I've been involved in law enforcement with uh, doing entries on really on homes that are sometimes fortified, but we're going after confirmed, no doubt, really bad guys. And I know the first time I ever went through the door like that, it was a little overwhelming. Um, and it seemed like everything happened so fast. And as I became uh, better trained, more competent, more proficient, um, I could go in a door and it was like, the almost like the world kind of slowed down. I could see everything that was going on. I could I could survey the room, um, even to the point that I knew what most of my partners were doing at the same time. Uh, um, but that that comes with years and years and years of practice and training and preparation. And like Andrew was talking about, a lot of that is the mental aspect, not just the physical. So, yeah, you know I. And they overlap because, I mean, the mental stress is is really the same as physical exhaustion. It has the same effect on you. There, there are two sides of the same coin. We, we see this particularly in, in combat soldiers. When, when they're, they might be in three or four minutes of, of a firefight, and the stress of that firefight, they may as well just ran five miles. I mean, yeah. they burn that much energy. They're that exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, and, folks, we, we don't 
tend to make better decisions under stress. We tend to make worse decisions under stress. Most of the cases I consult on, law-abiding citizens, normal law-abiding citizens, never been in trouble with the law a day in their lives, and they made some bad decisions, and that's why I'm working on their legal case. There was, to my eye, there were a lot of exits off that freeway to use of force that they could have taken uh, before they ended up in, in a bad situation. But under stress, they didn't see that. Well, if you condition yourself to stress so that you're better able to respond, you're more competent, guess what? You see those exits, and you're like, you can kind of, it's like the, the maturity of foresight, I call it. It's how adults see the world differently than kids, right? If you have kids, um, you've, you've all seen them take, a, you know, the cup of, well, it's some colored juice usually that's hard to clean, and they put it on the coffee table, halfway off the coffee table, like 49% on the edge of the coffee table. And we're sitting there, we're watching this, and we're like, well, we know what's going to happen. I mean, the cup's going to fall off the coffee table for sure and make a big mess that we have to clean up because guess why? We've seen it before. We have the maturity of foresight. We can see what's going to happen in the future, make reasonable inferences about what's likely to happen. Children don't have that. They haven't developed it yet. Adults under stress, unless they've conditioned themselves to some degree for, for stress, prepared themselves, they have difficulty foreseeing how things are going to unfold moving forward. But if you do the work, if you think about these road rage incidents, think about how you would respond, you'll find that you you can foresee, just like when we're driving, driving cars normally, we all do this, right? We do this a thousand times every time we get in a car, we see other traffic, we get a sense of mm, what's that driver going to do? Is he going to turn in front of me, right? He hasn't turned yet. You're, you're almost predicting the future. But you're what you're actually doing is seeing little micro cues and making predict predictions about what might happen from those my, you put your foot on the brake, maybe you're not braking, but your foot's there, ready to step on the brake just in case. 99% of the time, you don't have to jam on the brake, nothing bad happens, but we're, we're observing all this. By the way, guess who doesn't observe all that when driving? Novice drivers, they're overwhelmed. Yeah. But once you become a competent driver, you see more, just like we're talking about with guns or martial arts or anything else. It becomes much more intuitive. You can prepare your mind the same way for these perspective kind of confrontations where you begin to see micro cues very early on and exit off the path very early on. And you avoid thousands of confrontations and fights that way. They simply never happen because you don't put yourself in a position to be there when they're happening. Uh, and the best way to do that is, as, as we say, do this kind of mental dry firing. Would, I mean, just I'm sure if you Google road rage videos, you'll come up with 10,000 of, of them on YouTube. Train yourself. And by the way, anything else you can do to expose yourself to modest levels of stress, you know, growth only happens outside the comfort zone. Put yourself outside the comfort zone a little bit. Go to a, a competitive shooting match. Sure, is it stressful? A little bit. You're not going to get hurt. I mean, there's no real danger. Is it uncomfortable? You might be afraid you're going to embarrass yourself. If you've never done jujitsu, try it. I mean, most of these schools that give you a free class, is it uncomfortable to touch people if you're not used to touching strangers? It is. I remember what that feeling was like, but you get more comfortable with it. When you push yourself outside your comfort zone a little bit, that's when you begin to develop true competency. If all you ever do is stay in your comfort zone, folks, then the, the only time you're, you're tasked with doing something exceptional is in a real-life stressful situation where bad decisions can have catastrophically bad outcomes. That's not where you want to be. Dude, that is so good. Um, 
diamonds are, are, are formed under pressure. That's how it works. That's how it works. Um, I, back in the eighties, um, my son was young. Uh, my wife was pregnant with, with our daughter and I was, you remember when gas prices went so outrageous, um, interest price, interest rates went up ridiculously high. Um, I had, uh, I don't know, uh, about a 40 minute drive to work every day. And as a, as a means to kind of cut back and save on, on fuel costs and things like that, I started riding a motorcycle to work. And I had two incidents in one week that both just absolutely terrified me. And I thought, this is, I'm absolutely being stupid. I'm gonna drive my car, I'm selling the bike. I have, a, I have a child on the way, this is irresponsible. So I get out of the motorcycle business. I'm, I'm done riding a bike to work. And a couple of years later, I have a, a friend of my, friend of the family, and he lives in Gainesville, Florida. And he's coming through and he's making a cross country trip again. And he comes in and he pulls in and he's on, on this beautiful sport bike. I never would have dreamt of taking a cross country ride on a sport bike, but he's got a tank bag. He's got saddlebags on the back and he just lays down and, and actually said it was the most comfortable ride that he'd ever had going back and forth. But I was like, man, I love that bike. I, you know, but this was my experience. I'm done. And he goes, that's your problem. That's your fault. Like, what do you mean? That's my fault. And he says, if you're going to ride a motorcycle, you need to pr pretend as though you're invisible. And if you do that, you keep yourself out of every one of those situations that gets dicey. So yes, like the, like the truck that comes screaming through the intersection on a red light and, and makes the other guy upset. As long as I, I'm, I don't have to be the jackrabbit off the line and be the first to cross the intersection, you know, I give that extra little second and that's all it is to, to just check both ways. I'm good. Or I see, oh my gosh, this guy's not going to stop. Yeah. Um, so in the, I don't know, about two, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there, I, I got another bike and I'm telling you, never had another close call. And it was absolutely all because of my awareness. So, you know, we go into to all of those things as far as spatial awareness and situa situational awareness. You know, I don't just run into a convenience store when I'm gassing up and grab me a, an iced tea or anything like that. Before I actually enter that, I, I kind of scan and take a look inside and make things make sure things are safe. I don't I don't just insert myself into a problem that's already unfolding. <clears throat> I know in many of my classes, I I often the last segment of my full day class, we talk about these kinds of things. These how to how to integrate all the legal stuff we talked about in my law self-defense class with and put it in a real world context. And a lot of it is simply avoiding confrontations and being aware of your environment. And I'll ask people, hey, when you're walking into a convenience store, how many times do you actually affirmatively like look through the glass into the store and look at what's going on into the store? And almost nobody does. 
they, they treat that glass like it's, it's you can't it's see through it. And they it's don't know what's going on in that store until they open up the door and step inside. <laughs> it could be an armed robbery going on in there, which they could know if they only look through the glass first, but but they don't. Um, it's it's remarkable, but they don't because they never thought of it. And, you know, if you do it a thousand times and 999 of them, there's no problem. So you just assume it's not a problem moving forward. But it doesn't take much effort to look through the glass, right? You just have to be aware, uh, make the effort, do it. And then then you're stepping into an environment that's somewhat known to you. It's not you're not simply putting yourself in an ambush position all the time. You know, it. It's something that that I can tell you from experience is, is one of those things that gets police officers hurt. You know, complacency kills. Just like you're talking about. We've done this 999 times and nothing has ever happened. And then all of a sudden I walk through that door one more time and, and I'm unprepared. Um, so it's funny. I, I sit here listening to you going, how many times do you walk, walk up to a convenience store and, and do a scan? And, and every time, every single time. But that became an ingrained behavior over years and years and years. And I understand that it only takes that one time. And I've, I've worked those cases where, you know, somebody is, is laying dead behind the counter. There's, there's nothing cool about anything that, that is lethal force related. Um, yeah, I mean, one so of the huge advantages that concealed carriers have, folks like me, I've never been in the military. I've never been a cop. I, I just wear normal clothes. I carry a gun every day. I have, oh my God, more than 30 years now. I've been carrying a gun every day for personal protection, but no one knows I have a gun because I carry concealed. Uh, and if people ever interact with police officers and, and they seem a little uh, standoffish, uh, it's because they spend a large part of their lives in uniforms, readily identifiable as law enforcement officers. And you would think that bad guys would be hesitant about attacking cops. No, 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 no. There are plenty of bad guys out there who would be ecstatic to beat the snot out of a cop. Uh, and cops know this. They're well aware of this. They have to be hyper attentive to their environment. Well, you do that on your shift every day for 10 or 15 years, and it, it spills over into your normal life, too. And that's why they seem to be acting a little different. They're acting a little different because they've been conditioned by their career to respond a little different, be more attentive, be more aware, more sensitive to their environment uh, than even someone like me has to be because, I mean, no one, I, I'm not identifiable as somebody who, who has a gun, for example. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very cognizant of my behavior for, for that reason. I mean, I, I understand that I have to kind of at least physically dial that down. The numbers of times I've had people just walk up out of nowhere and go, you're a cop, aren't you? Because they see it, they, they recognize that, that hypersensitivity to everything going on around you. Um, you know, I, I'm still, I'm not gonna change how I, how I position myself and sit in a restaurant. I'm just not going to, it, it's something that, that I can keep an eye on and, and respond, even if it's just a second, any kind of, any kind of just lead. look around. <laughs> yes. You walk in, look around the room. It's amazing how many people don't even do that. Just look around the room. What other do that first scan to see if there's anything weird going on. I, man, I've walked into restaurants, looked around and walked back out again. Yeah. Because yeah. somebody was having an argument. I didn't want to be in that environment. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Andrew, how, how can our folks get a hold of you? How can they how can they 
dial in and get your education. They get, get your book, they get your stuff. Um, cause guys, if you haven't done it, um, it is absolutely the next step in your journey. You have to prepare yourself mentally. You have to know the law. You have to know what you can do. Uh, and as we're talking about today, we're, the things that we need to actually step away from and avoid and, and know that, yeah, that's, that's a losing comp situation for me. And, and if I step over that line, I'm, I'm going to find myself in trouble. <clears throat> yeah. Of course, the benefit of taking that super cautious approach is if there is a circumstance where you do need to use deadly force and self-defense, you're still completely well positioned to do this. I do want to mention to people that I'm not suggesting that people do anything that increases their jeopardy. All the things I'm talking about being cautious, avoiding fights, it's all stuff that can be done consistent with safety. Don't make things more dangerous for yourself. I'm not suggesting that. Often when I lecture to people, I, someone in the class will come to me afterwards and say, oh my God, you scared me so much, I'm not gonna carry a gun anymore. That's not what I'm trying to do. I carry a gun every day. I just want people to make informed decisions, to have thought out their decisions so they can avoid making bad decisions that don't have to be made. Um, in terms of how people can get out to me, I think all the CCW safe members already get a copy of my book. I'm not sure, but if anybody doesn't have it or would like to get one for a loved one, you can get a copy of this book, real book, physical book for free. Uh, we just ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. Uh, lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Pretty simple, lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Get a copy of the book. Otherwise, we're everywhere. Lawofselfdefense.com, we're on YouTube, we're on Twitter, we're on just all the social medias. Um, if you do lawselfdefense.com slash whatever the social media platform is, Instagram, it'll it'll redirect you to to that. I don't do a ton of social media, but that's where you would find, except YouTube. We have a lot of videos on YouTube. Andrew, thank you so much, brother. Um, guys, these are just absolute nuggets of gold. <laughs> um, share this share this link with your friends. Um, it. It's one of those things that if, if we're going to carry a firearm, if we're going to be armed citizens and, and citizen defenders, it's something we really, really need to, to pay attention to. The mental aspects of this and understanding what, what the pitfalls are, where I'm going to find myself in trouble. Um, it, it's the difference between spending the rest of my life with my family and spending the rest of my life incarcerated or, or maybe dead. Um, know your mission, um, train as much as you can and training doesn't cost a dime. You know, Andrew's talking about, uh, watching these, all the, you know, Google, all these different incidents, you know, educate yourself, see how these things unfold, see how they occur. Um, and then start doing the mental repetitions that if I was in this guy's place, what would I do? How would I have, how could I have possibly avoided being in that position to begin with? And if I'm stuck in that position and there's no way out, what's my response then? Um, you know, if a guy's already got a gun drawn, it's not the smartest time to go, okay, this is now a, a quick draw competition. It may be time to be very submissive and, and hands up and, and try, to, try to get to a position where if necessary, I could uh, behind a, a display rack in the store or something, maybe get to my firearm. But uh, once once that gun's already trained on me, I'm already behind the curve and odds are I'm going to lose that one. Um, again, be, be smart, be safe. 
Um, take care of one another out there. Uh, as always, if you guys have any questions or comments, suggestions, you can always reach me at Rob, R-O-B, at ccwsafe.com. We love to hear your, your questions. Uh, we, if you got things you want us to cover and, and touch on, we'd be happy to do that for you. And we look forward to seeing you guys uh, next week. So thank you so much for tuning in. Andrew, brother, it's so good to see you again. Always. We be here as always. You know, and my answer is always yes. When you guys call, the answer is always yes. So anytime you want me on, just you know where to reach me. Uh, be careful telling me that. <laughs> thank, thank you guys. We'll see you for now.